Hello and welcome to Ocean Calls, the podcast making waves on the issues that matter to friends of the sea. I'm Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes. In the previous episode, we debated deep sea mining, an emerging and controversial industry you may not have heard that much about. But in this episode, we're discussing an issue that's been making the headlines for decades. Welcome back to Euro News Tonight. Eco-friendly packaging. Well, is it really? Uh, those produced by large brands uh, are the world is facing an ocean emergency. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres told delegates at the opening day of the UN's ocean. A new study has found that 80% of our litter dumped into the world's oceans is single-use plastic. Some extracts there from Euronews' TV bulletins reporting on marine plastic pollution. Let's face it, it's an issue that everyone agrees on. Plastic bottles, plastic bags, lumps of fishing gear and other plastic waste shouldn't be in the ocean. Joining me to discuss the effects of marine plastic pollution on the environment and what can be done to prevent it are two experts. Penny Lindeque, the Head of Science, Marine Ecology and Biodiversity at Plymouth Marine Laboratory in the UK. Hello, Penny. Good morning. Nice to speak to you and Dr. Francois Galgani, a senior research scientist at French research organisation IFREMER, joining us from Tahiti in French Polynesia. Hello, Francois. Happy to join also. And later in the podcast, our regular feature in which a famous person tells us about their favourite marine animal. Today, it's a thrilling tale from ocean conservation champion Alexandra Cousteau. Penny, when was the last time you went swimming or diving in the ocean and did you actually see any plastic pollution when you were there? Yesterday was the last time that I went swimming in the ocean. I live in South Devon of the United Kingdom, and I'm very fortunate to live close enough to just walk down to our local beach. So there's a beautiful bay here and a relatively small river that leads into that bay. And it's known for being quite pristine. People would like to think there's not much pollution there. But unfortunately, one of the things that I saw yesterday was a plastic bag caught up against one of the trees on the riverbank and also some uh, discarded fishing gear. Francois, you're in Tahiti, the other side of the world. What's it like over there? Do you get out in the ocean and do you see marine pollution all the time? The normal situation would be that we don't have so much. But in fact, we save a lot from uh, fishing uh, boats that are around the area, especially from Southeast Asia. They are coming and they're launching a lot of uh, what we call fishing aggregating devices. And also we save a lot of microplastics that are coming from everywhere in the Pacific Ocean. Instead of having clear waters, we do have some places that are really accumulating also. Plastic residues are found in marine species such as sea turtles, seals, whales and birds. And we've seen photos of that. We see also photos of it in fish. We hear about it in shellfish. And therefore, we hear about it also being in the human food chain. But just to kind of define the problem, what is this stuff? How do we define marine plastic pollution, Penny? Marine plastic pollution comes in all shapes and sizes. It can't be classified into sort of one particular unit. So we talk about macroplastic, and that's really quite large plastic. And as you correctly said, I think 
the people understand perhaps the hazard that this large plastic causes to large charismatic marine animals. The fact that turtles may accidentally feed on a carrier bag because they consider it similar to their natural prey, that of a jellyfish. But there's also a plastic that Francois has also um, already spoken about, which we don't readily see, and that's the really small plastic. And this we term microplastic, and it's less than five millimetres in size. So sometimes if you're on the beach and you get on your hands and knees and you're really looking through the sand, you can see the larger fragments of this microplastic. But it also goes down to the really, really small sizes. And that causes a problem because then it's bioavailable or it's available to be ingested by a huge range of organisms. Did you know that the first fully synthetic plastic was invented in 1907 and more than a half of all plastics ever manufactured were produced in the last 20 years? A representative of Europe's plastic industry told us that plastic products are very often designed for performance and aesthetics rather than being designed to be recycled, a business model they say needs to change and will change. Francois, when did we realise this was a problem, actually? Because a lot of our listeners, uh, I think, will probably be younger. They've they've kind of grown up with this. But was there a moment when the world realised that we were really, really had a serious plastic pollution problem in the oceans? I think that the scientists came to the topic, I would say, and tried to understand what was happening. So at at first, it was mainly at the surface. And then we start on uh, through diving, you know, using subs or ROVs and so on to count and then uh, map the distribution of litter and so on. And we found that there were uh, were huge amounts uh, on the deep sea. That has been something like very um, difficult to understand at the beginning. But then step by step, and because also politicians, policymakers try to help, I mean, not only the scientific community, but also to solve the problem, their main concern. Uh, Finally, it has been a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, scientists involved. And actually, we do have a very strong community and uh, that's good for science, and that's good also to support policymakers then. How did it make you feel when you kind of went through that period of realising the extent of the problem, that it wasn't just a few kind of large objects floating on the surface, that it was deep? Yes. Uh, in fact, you know, diving, for instance, uh, uh, one, one of my first dives was 1,000 metre deep. And uh, it was in the Mediterranean Sea, and we found, I mean, you, I mean, accumulation areas with a lot of uh, microliter bottles, plastic bags, and so on. And um, the, it was really frustrating because I was expecting something like a new species, a treasure, something very exotic, I would say, because it is a deep sea. And in fact, just coming to uh, an old spot of uh, where uh, litter was accumulating, for instance, was really, I mean, a strange feeling and uh, not a good one, for sure. Did you actually recognise the objects down there and say, okay, I, I can see that that's a particular type of, of, of brand of, of water bottle or something? Uh, yes, that's true, yeah. Because of the shape of the bottles, it was easy to understand where they were coming from and the companies and so on. Even some that have uh, disappeared since, uh, they are still on, uh, I mean, on, on the bottom of the sea just because there is less oxygen and there is no light. And these two factors are I mean, facilitating the degradation of plastic that's not occurring in the deep. Penny, talk me through the journey this plastic has taken. How does it end up there in the places that Francois was describing? We tend to find that plastic may come from maritime sources, but it can also come from land sources. And that latter source that um, is thought to be probably the biggest polluter. 
So it can be left on beaches. It can be due to poor waste management. It can be due to storms, extremes, vents, tsunamis. The rivers we find are quite often a pathway, a conduit for that plastic getting from the land onto the sea. And I think the more we look into it, the more complicated it is, because as we go back to talking about microplastics, these are really, really small fragments and they can be a number of different types. So they can be fragments, fibres, films, microbeads, loads and loads of different shapes, sizes, colours, polymers. And the more we've looked into this over the years, the more sources we found I mean, one alarming fact is that a lot of the clothes we wear are actually synthetic. They're made of plastic. They're different polymers. So a single wash can produce 700,000 fibres, which make their way down through the wastewater treatment works and out into the rivers or in straight into the marine environment. So this is just one example. There's many more. Even simple things like driving cars or riding a bike produces these small microplastics through the wear of the tyres and these get blown or washed into the marine environment. We do find it everywhere from the tropics to the poles to the surface to the deep ocean and unfortunately on uh, uninhabited islands which should be absolutely pristine. Obviously the problem is very widespread and I think it's useful to talk about the impact on the marine environment on the on the animals that are there, because we, we started by talking about yeah, iconic species that you see in awful situations with plastic wrapped around them, trapped by these uh, man-made objects. But how significant is the problem on a kind of species or ecosystem level? Are there species that are actually genuinely at risk because of plastic pollution? I think it's something that we're still investigating. One thing that I would like to say is there is enough evidence that we know that it's it's causing harm. It is a hazard in the natural environment. It shouldn't be there. On the other hand, we do need to know more. We need to know what type of plastic is causing a problem. Where is it likely to be causing the worst problem? To what animals is it causing the most harm? And plastics cause an array of hazards. As we've spoken about, it can be entanglement and that can lead to drowning, it can lead to starvation, can lead to mortality. Uh, the plastic can also be ingested. And we know from studies that that can cause a real problem to the individuals. I mean, one of the animals I work on mostly is this little animal called zooplankton. And that covers a number of different uh, small and large animals that live in the marine environment. They're what we call our secondary producers. So they graze on the plants, the phytoplankton, and they pass this energy up to higher trophic levels. So up to fish, to whales, to birds. And these small organisms are super important. And we found that every species we look at has the capacity to ingest microplastics. And if they ingest those microplastics, then they're less likely to ingest their natural prey. And this can have a problem because it can lead to starvation. It means they're less reproductively able. They produce eggs, but they're not as viable. In fact, it's not just on the entanglement or ingestion of plastic, but it's also the transportation of different species, for instance. Actually, it's about 20,000 billions of particles at the surface of the sea. 
And uh, these particles, pieces of plastics are traveling long distance. And just after the tsunami, for instance, as a good example, it has been in six years more than uh, 280 different species that have been traveling from Japan to Northern America. And uh, I mean, sometimes good for them, sometimes, I mean, causing problems and so on. And we don't know exactly what will be the consequence, but we are sure that in terms of impact, that will be something like uh, Noah's heart, you know, traveling, I mean, transporting a lot, a lot of species, some at risk, some that may be pathogens. And this example is just only for large species without any information on small microorganisms or unicellular algae and so on. So finally, it could be thousands of species traveling uh, regularly from one point to another one at low speed, uh, I mean, rafting different kinds of species and so on, and we don't know exactly what are the consequences. So in terms of biodiversity, it could be more than individual impact also. Is there any evidence that any sea life, any animals in the sea are kind of adapting to having plastic in their habitat? We have found that the animals can sort of adapt or, or to a certain extent cope. I know when we're looking at a particular type of zooplankton called copepods, if they're fed microplastics of a certain size, then they can start avoiding any particles of that size. But that does also include their natural prey. So it's it's very complex. I mean, potentially, if there's prey of a different size that they are also capable of eating, then that may be a way of avoiding those plastics. On the other hand, as we said, the plastics come in so many different shapes and sizes that the chances are there will also be different shapes and sizes of plastics available to them. But they're building a kind of awareness that there's no nutritional value in eating an object like that. Is, is that what you mean? I'm not sure they're actually building an awareness, but they are, yes, they're, they're filling up on something which is not good for them. And so they're therefore trying to avoid things of that size. But the problem is when the plastics are in the natural environment, they become coated in bacteria and the small plants, they form this biofilm. And those plants and the bacteria can produce chemicals, which actually make that plastic start to smell like their natural prey. So it's almost tricking organisms into to thinking that what they're eating is in fact natural, because it's got this sort of natural coating on the outside, which makes it smell and taste better. Did you know that under 10% of plastic is recycled? Much of the waste is buried in landfill, some is incinerated, and an estimated 14 million tonnes ends up in the ocean every year, according to the environmental network IUCN. You may think that biodegradable plastics are the answer, but even they only decompose in very specific composting conditions. Is there something we could do to make the plastic kind of digestible to the animals in some way? Is there something that could be added by the people who are making the plastic that would allow it to at least not get stuck inside them in the same way? Uh, it has been tried already. I mean, uh, having part of the plastic, I mean, some components made of uh, organic matter that will serve as uh, food or will degrade very quickly and favoring uh, bacterial degradation and so on. But the problem is that, you know, plastic must be uh, light and resistant. This is the interest of plastics. And so if you change one thing, I mean, that will be not be useful in terms of uh, use, regular use by human and so on and it could be better for the environment, but you will lose the interest of plastics. And so that's the reason why the market does uh, approve this kind of approach. 
And Penny, is it your view, in fact, that the microplastics is the more problematic of the two that we could eventually, and we'll move on to solutions, but that we could eventually fix the sort of larger plastic problem, but that the microplastics will will never manage to deal with. And that's the one that's really going to get inside the food web. I wouldn't say it's more of a problem, but I, I think it's an equal problem. We're talking now about the microplastics and the large macroplastics, but there's an even smaller size that we call the nanoplastics. And we don't know that much about the impact of the nanoplastics because they're so hard to monitor, to do experiments on, to actually investigate. But they have the ability to translocate from the stomach across membranes and things into the tissues. And they also potentially still contain chemicals. So there's, there's a whole arena there of nanoplastics and the problem that they might cause to marine life that we're only just starting to investigate. Let's talk about what we're going to do about this problem. I know that there are rules and regulations already in place. There are rules and regulations coming in. Something that we learned about doing some research for this was that um, fishing vessels coming into port in the EU have to bring ashore all the plastic waste that they accidentally catch while trying to catch fish as well. Are measures like that, the things that are already in place, having any effect? The problem is that the, the fishing vessels may be useful to collect, but a uh, large part of the litter they are collecting is coming from fishing vessel. So fishery in, uh, fishing industry is polluting and helping to collect, you see. And uh, so that cannot be the only way to solve the problem. It's just only interesting when you give value to the litter. For instance, if you collect fishing gear, uh, then you may repair, you may recycle, you may reuse them. In that case, that makes sense to clean the bottom of the ocean. And so when you have a value somewhere, you may clean. But most of the time, I mean, it's not useful and it's too expensive to do, especially in the deep sea. We've also had things like the EU single-use plastics directive that came into force um, in July 2021, and that banned the sale of things like plastic plates and, and cutlery and straws and cotton buds. Again, has, has that had any effect actually so far? Have we seen any difference in plastic pollution, at least on the EU level, because of that? It would take some years to see some good effects, I would say. But my feeling is that it's a good solution to prevent. I mean, any, in any case, prevention is the best, you see. And uh, we do have some other tools to reduce the uh, plastic pollution, but banning uh, most important uh, types of plastic that are coming to the sea, uh, I think is a very good decision. What is important to understand is that the t type of litter you find at sea are most of the time coming from consumers. And it's the way the people are behaving. So every decision that will uh, try to help and change the, um, uh, the way the people is behaving uh, will have a good effect, I think. How do you engineer that change in culture? Uh, it's very hard to do. Huh? That will take generations. It's quite easy to use the plastics. And, uh, but, I mean, to solve the problem, that will take a few generations, I think. Yeah. Penny, what's been your experience on this? I think we would all agree that plastic is a super useful substance. You know, it, it's a really useful material. We use it for a number of different applications and we'd be pretty lost without it. But as Francoise has been saying, we've been really slow as a society to adequately deal with it at its end of life. 
we're tending to put a bit of responsibility on the consumer, but it doesn't seem to me that it's really necessarily their fault that they ended up getting a plastic product. As you say, plastic's amazing stuff. It's resistant, it's tough, it's light. Um, it Surely it is at a higher level than the consumer that the, that the solution comes from. It comes from governments and, and, and a big shift in putting a price on the material as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it has to come from a, a combination of both of those. I mean, we've seen in the United Kingdom that there's been a, a levy on plastic bags for a few years now. And slowly, um, when we're looking at the, um, the the data from doing beach cleans, that there is a reduction in the amount of plastic bags we're finding. So that's great. And, you know, we always had the choice not to use a plastic bag, but to use one of our own. But that extra small charge of, of 5p was enough to make people stop and think, actually, I'm going to buy a better bag or I'm going to use a box or something. So I do think it needs to come from industry, from policy as well. I mean, I can imagine me as a consumer definitely making a change related to my use of plastic and taking on board what you're talking about there. But then there are the, some of the things you brought up in the beginning of the conversation, the microplastics, the very tiny things from synthetic fibres from the washing machine. And that was shocking to hear that. Um, we also know, yeah, we've got particles from car tyres or paint and things. Really, we can't do very much about that at the moment, can we? No, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, to ask consumers to change so that they're wearing natural fibres, such as cotton or linen, and that's difficult. And there's a cost implication with that as well. Could we fit something to washing machines so that it takes out the fibres? Potentially, can we look at wastewater treatment works and see if we can make that more efficient and more able to deal with the small particles? But it's a, it's a complex story because quite often the plastics can be caught in some of the wastewater treatment works uh, and then they become part of the sludge. But then that sludge is actually taken and spread on farmers' fields because it's a really good form of fertiliser. But then we've just taken the microplastics and then we spread it on the land. So first of all, it could cause a harm um, to the land and to the animals there. But also as soon as it rains, it runs off again and ends up in the marine environment. So potentially the smaller the plastic that goes, the more difficult it is to regulate and to try and do something about. Francois, you're in Tahiti, but you're also often in Brussels, or at least speaking to people in Brussels. To what extent are they aware of the kind of scope and scale of the problem that, that Penny's describing here and, and what's being discussed to try and fix it? So about microplastics, I would say that uh, the best solution probably is to reduce the large debris, large pieces of plastics, macroplastics, uh, because most of them are coming directly from the degradation of large plastics. So all the reduction measures that are working for large will be helpful for microplastics. That's one point. Then I think that uh, uh, um, it has been started uh, about 15 years ago, the interest from policymakers on that topic because probably of the social demand. And uh, I think that they are really active, in fact. The problem is that the knowledge is not really there. Even if we have more and more information on the different uh, issues, it's not well understood. Does, does that make you feel kind of frustrated, though, when you're having these conversations? No, 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 no. In fact, I'm really happy that they are really active. But, it, it, you know, it's a global issue, and then it will take time. You cannot solve that in just a few years. That will take decades. But I'm really optimistic because we do have some other, I mean, recycling, for instance, and new materials. I know that's a very important scientific teams are working on 
polymers that are recycled, that may be recycled, I mean, uh, thousands of times and so on, and that may solve the problem. Step by step, I think that we that would be the, the good direction. What do you make of the United Nations Treaty on Plastic Pollution? Do you think that that, which is a document that they're working on now, right, it's being negotiated at the moment, do you think that's going to be meaningful and significant? It sounds like it should be, but do you think it'll have teeth? Uh, that would be very subjective. I was participating in the preparatory work. And well, the, the, the feeling is that when you have to solve the problem uh, in the marine environment, there is no border there. And so if you don't have any coordination, that will not work at all. And so that's one point. And then the second point is that at the beginning, when we started discussing the idea of this agreement, it was only focusing on more litter. And then step by step, it has been uh, switched to uh, I mean, plastic pollution in general. And uh, what is good is that it will address microplastic, for instance. It will address fresh waters. It will, I mean all type of plastic pollution, and then it will also support the action toward industry and so on, and that will be constraining. We have seen initiatives to actively go and clean up. We've seen the ocean cleanup projects. We also hear about, you know, drones and robot fish and whatever. Penny, is, is that actually in any way significant or, or, or useful to actually do those, those sorts of things? I mean, they look fun, but I wonder whether they're really up to the scale of the problem. I think it's worthwhile, but I think we have to stop it at source. That's the main thing. We, we have to address what's going on on the land and how it's getting there in the first place. We need to work towards a circular economy where we're making plastic that can readily and easily be recycled such that it can be collected properly, that it doesn't lose any of its value as it's been recycled. So there is a place for some of the cleanup. If the rubbish gets washed up on the beach, then our modelling has shown that that is one of the sort of entries into the system where we can quite cheaply remove it. And if we don't, it's just going to get blown back into the sea and go back into that whole ocean current system where it's transported from one country to another. So you, you, you tell me as a cynical journalist who um, sees these politicians wandering along, picking up bits of plastic from the beach, so that actually is a helpful thing to do and is, isn't just sort of paying lip service to the problem. Let's just say I think we have to do it more than once in front of the camera. Um, uh, but regular beach cleans, I mean, so it's twofold. First of all, it removes the waste from the system and we need to do that. It's not the answer to the problem, but it's only going to help. Francois, what's your answer to the problem? Have you got a, a kind of list of top three things we need to do to fix this ocean plastic pollution problem? Look, we are more than 7 billion uh, individuals uh, on Earth. And uh, I mean, we are then more than 7 billion of uh, sources for plastic pollution. So it's really complex to manage. And about cleaning, that must be just focusing on area that where it's necessary like beaches. So in some cases, it's interesting, but cleaning the sea is not, uh, because we, we may clean before in the estuary is what is coming to the sea. Uh, it's more easy and uh, probably more efficient, I would say. It would be true to say, though, that that plastic that's already there, that's in the deep sea that you talked about at the beginning of the program, that's going to be there for a very long time, whatever we do. It is. Yes, 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 sure. I mean, you cannot clean there. We cannot go to collect plastic. It's just impossible. Absolutely. And I, I think we're going to see our legacy in sort of sediment samples moving forward as, you know, people have, have gone back through cores to, to, to see what's happened in history. I, I think there's going to be a layer of plastic 
coming up already. And as Francois says, that's not something we can remove. You know, that's too big a problem. And moving forward, we just have to address it at source. We need to look at new materials. We need to look at a circular economy and we need to prevent it getting into the marine environment in the first place. Well, thank you very much, Penny Linda Q from Plymouth Marine Laboratory and Francois Galgani from Ifremer for joining me on Ocean Calls. Okay, now the moment many have been waiting for our regular slot ocean favourites when celebrated voices tell us all about their number one ocean animal. Our special guest today is one of the legendary Cousteau family, part of a long line of explorers of the sea. She continues to raise awareness about the issues the ocean is facing today. Alexandra Cousteau is one of the founders of the Oceans 2050 initiative, aiming to restore abundance to the undersea world for our children and grandchildren. And her ocean favourite is one that would give many of us a bit of a fright. An animal that's iconic, revered, profoundly important and often at risk. My name is Alexandra Cousteau. One of the ones that fascinates me the most is the shark. For me, sharks are mysterious and intelligent and sensitive creatures that represent healthy ecosystems and an ocean imbalance. 20 years ago, I was um, on a dolphin research expedition in the Bahamas. We were in the water with a beautiful pod of dolphins for about two hours, and then they started to just kind of go on their way. After a while, I I got a little winded, and I dove down to watch them, you know, as they disappeared into the blue and found myself um, face-to-face with a 12- or 13-foot female tiger shark that was swimming kind of right towards me. And so um, I assumed that she was simply curious and started in a very leisurely fashion, just swimming back towards the boat. And as I got closer to the boat, everybody on the boat started waving their arms at me and saying, Alexandra, shark. (laughs) And I said, yes, I know, because her fin had come up behind me. And so it did seem like something out of of a, you know, horror movie. And I just kept staying calm and swimming back at the surface. And I looked down as I got closer to the boat and I was quite surprised because the shark was down swimming along the sandy bottom, which was at about, you know, 30 feet. And she had two dolphins on either side of her, escorting her out of the area. And it was remarkable behavior to be able to witness because, you know, dolphins and sharks don't generally like to occupy the same area. And dolphins are known to chase sharks away or injure them. And I was the lucky beneficiary of, of that. She took my breath away when I saw her at first, you know, this 
I think tiger sharks are, are one of the more beautiful sharks there are. And she was so, she was just so big and so beautiful. And she had these tiger stripes on her side and she had little fish swimming on either side of her mouth that were bright yellow and bright fuchsia. And it looked like she had these neon whiskers coming out, you know? And she was moving in, in a very calm way. She wasn't agitated as they get when they're, when they're hunting and they can move in kind of a jerky fashion. Um, she wasn't moving like that at all. She was just swimming very smoothly and kind of looked like this amazing creature. And yeah, I'll never forget that moment when I saw her for the first time. It was, it was extraordinary. And then I kept my cool, which was <laughs> extraordinary as well. The Ocean Calls podcast is created by ocean lovers here at Euronews for ocean fans around the world. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes, and this series is produced by my colleagues Naira Dablashian and Natalia Olsner. In this episode, we used extracts from our news bulletins. You can find links to our reports in the description. Editing is by Laurie Martinez, Chiara Santella and Luis Lopez from Studio Ochenta. The theme music is by Gabrielle Dalmasso, and our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claude. For more on Penny Lindicue's work, check out at PK and at Plymouth Marine on Twitter. And if you want to know more about Francois Galgani's work, please visit www.ifremere.fr. And I recommend reading more about Alexandra Cousteau, the founder of the Oceans 2050 initiative. You can follow her on Twitter at acousteau. The podcast Ocean Calls is made possible by the European Commission's DG Mare. You can listen to it on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. If you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating, comment and tell your friends. Your help makes spreading the word about the oceans so much easier. If you want our team to read your comments on social media, use the hashtag Ocean Calls. If you're looking for something else to listen to, look out for another Euronews podcast called The Star Ingredient a culinary show about Africa's forgotten foods and efforts to revive them. For more information on Ocean Calls, go to our website, euronews.com, and a very special mention to Ocean, a Euronews TV series created by our colleague Dennis Lottier. Have a look on euronews.com slash ocean. It really is very special. Follow world news from a European perspective on euronews.com. <laughs> <laughs>